<clears throat> well, um, just by way of review, because it's been a couple Sundays since I preached last, we are at that point now in Romans where Paul has not um, set aside doctrine, but now he's building on the doctrine that he has established in these first 11 chapters, where he has brought us into that awareness and, and that, 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 that clarity that we are in need of Jesus, that every person has fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners, and that righteousness is only through faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And that having put our faith in Him, God reckons us righteous, and that He is the one who justifies us. He is the one who takes away the enmity and brings us into peace with Himself. And in that peace that we are, we are seeing the much more of His love, and that He's no longer relating to us as enemies, as helpless, as sinners, as ungodly, but as the very children of God. And that all that he would ask in response is that we present ourselves to him and no longer present ourselves to sin with the members of our body functioning as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather as righteousness. We saw how that it is not sufficient to try to live the Christian life simply responding to, to what the word would have us to do in our own strength or to respond to the new nature that God has put us, which orients us to Christ Himself. But I need Jesus. I need the indwelling ministry of the Spirit of God for living the Christian life. And that, that His ministry to me is to lead me into life and peace, to deliver me from the law of sin and death, to fulfill the law of God in me, to bear witness of the fact that I am a child of God, the Spirit crying out within me, Abba, Father, that He lives in me to work all things together for good, that good being being brought into conformity to Christ, and that nothing will ever separate me from the love of God. Then he moved, remember, to, to an illustration of Israel, I believe, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, as being a portrayal right before us in the providence of God being outworked in, 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 before our eyes even today. That, again, nothing will separate us from the love of God, and God is working all things together for good. That the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, and nothing is going to undo what God has begun in our lives, that we have been predestined to be brought into the very conformity to Jesus, conformity to Christ, and it will take place. All of that being said, then Paul brought us to that, to that powerful um, um, benediction, as it were, at the end of chapter 11, where he spoke of Christ, and we took a little time looking at that before, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And the only reasonable thing to do in response is to present ourselves to Him as living sacrifices. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, and God has been merciful to us. 
that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable service of worship. Now, from that statement, again, the only reasonable thing to do in response to who Jesus is and all that He has secured in our lives. He's speaking to Christians here, and He's saying, present yourselves or yield yourself to Christ. Give yourself without reservation to Him. Make it final. Establish in your hearts who Christ is and who you are and that you are not the source of anything and that Christ is the source of all. Present yourself to Him. Yield yourself to Him for His activity. It was totally, 100% the activity of God that saved you, and it is totally, 100% the activity of God in you to work out that salvation. And so these next chapters are really just what it looks like for a life to be presented to Jesus, that it makes a practical difference. It's not simply theoretical. It is not simply a profession that Jesus is my life but it will make a difference in the way that we live. And the first thing that we saw is it affects your thinking. And you will think, first of all, you will think Christians ought to be thinking people. And we can't overestimate that, especially today, when more and more people are just saying, just put your brain in neutral and go with the feelings. The first thing that he says here in verse 3, after having presented yourselves to him, for through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And that thinking will lead me to humility concerning who I am, concerning who the body of Christ is, and my place in that body, and the importance of every single member of the body that every member is of value, that the Holy Spirit, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is the one who distributes the gifts. He determines who will get which gift. He determines how that gift will be worked out. He determines what the ministry and the effect of that gift will be. And so it's up to Him. I have no reason to boast in the gifts and abilities. All things come from God. He is the source. He is the means. He is the goal. And if I think rightly concerning Christ and I present myself to Him, then the first manifestation of that right thinking is humility in respect to myself and a high estimation of the other members of the body of Christ. They are all of value and worth. And then in verse 9, where we are this morning, it seems to me that in the rest of chapter 12, Paul is focusing again on the outworking of the life of Christ through a believer who has yielded himself to him, and that outworking is in the context of relationships. And he'll speak of the positive aspect of relationships, love the body of Christ, love your fellow believer in Christ. And he will speak about the negative as well, those who are our enemies. I want to focus this morning on the first part which is the love part, the positive aspect, and then next Sunday we'll look at, the, at how we are to relate to our enemies. 
But I've given this introduction here, spent a few minutes here, because I want to again remind you of the context. Everything that Paul's going to say in these verses 9 through 13 are built off of and predicated on a life yielded to Jesus. So he is not saying to an unbeliever, he is not saying to an unyielded Christian, these things ought to be true in your life. Because they won't be. The only way for these things to be true is, one, I have to be in relationship with Christ. I have to be saved. And secondly, my life must be presented to Jesus. If that is not first, then there is no way that these very clear statements of Romans 12, 9 to 13 will be true in my life. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let me tell you why that has to be by the Spirit of God. Again, it's a choice. I'll emphasize that in a minute. But go back and look at Romans chapter 3 with me. Romans chapter 3 to see again what Paul has to say about the condition of man apart from Jesus. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written... There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And yet we are to love without hypocrisy. And then in verse 19, For we know that without, with whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Later in the chapter he's going to say, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 5, he will say that we were apart from Christ, helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies of God. And to these people who are now saved and who have presented their lives to Jesus, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. So you can see, there is no way for my love to be anything other than hypocritical unless I am first saved and have yielded my life to Jesus. Because the only one who has an unhypocritical love, a pure and sincere love, is God, who is love. I can't just decide, this is my New Year's resolution, that I will be a person who loves without hypocrisy. It has to come from the dynamic of Christ in me. But you understand, and I don't want to minimize this, that the life that is yielded to Jesus is a life that not only thinks rightly, but chooses rightly. And that life yielded to Jesus, he can now say to me as a Christian, one who has yielded his life to Christ, there is an imperative upon you. And so, yes, you present yourself to him. But having presented yourself to him, now choose in accordance with him and his life. And so the choosing is a yielding, yes. But it's not simply a yielding that says that I will no longer think and I will no longer act. But having yielded to Him, I can now think and act more clearly, more definitively than any person who does not have Jesus as their life. That's what Paul's getting at. 
He doesn't say that you stop thinking and you stop choosing. But the yielded life to Christ will manifest itself in both clear thinking, humility in that thinking, and also a choosing. Choosing what is true of Jesus by faith. And again, I know this seems, it, it seems hard for us to get our minds around. But he's not saying get your mind around it. He's saying it's the reality here. And I, I think, you know, maybe it's not a good illustration, but I think about how a river flows. And Jesus describes his life as a, as a river of life that will flow through us. And, and in that life, you know, that river that flows, I, you know, I think, man, you can put a dam across that river, and you can say, I'm going to stop that river. But really, dams can only just, just hinder a river for a brief time. That river is either going to go over that dam, it's going to go around that dam, or in some cases, it'll go right through the dam. But you can't stop the river. It will flow. Which reminded me of when I used to be a, a whitewater rafting guide one summer when I was living in North Carolina. We'd take kids out in this camp um, every week to, to float down the, not float, we would charge down the Pigeon River um, in Tennessee. And it was, it was a wild river. And, I, and it, didn't, it didn't even seem um, uh, right to me, the instructions that I was given. I remember the first time I got, got on that river. And that was because you, you just feel like you're at the mercy of the river. I mean, it's just a wild torrent. You know, class four and five water, much of it. And they, and they would say to us, you, are, you will be at the mercy of the river unless you paddle fast. Well, okay, I was paddling fast. Because, I mean, if you just sit and go passive then you, you'll hit every rock out there, and you will capsize that, that raft. And so it, it seems almost counterintuitive. You have got to paddle fast. But you're not paddling against the river. You're going with the river. You make a choice when you're in that river. And you make the choice to do nothing and sit on your hands, and it'll be disaster. Or you choose in keeping with the river. You paddle fast. And again, it's not that we're, now I'm not trying to make an illustration here. You do your best for Jesus and you, and you paddle the river, paddle of life as hard as you can. But you move in the direction of God. And God is in you to produce these things, to reveal these things, to manifest these things in our lives. And I am in agreement with Him when I choose these things. God, my life is yours. My life yielded to you is a life that will manifest clear thinking in humility and love, because God is love. And so I choose by faith what is consistent with Him and what He is working in my life. And understand, let love be is a choice. He's saying, choose this. But, how can, but isn't that hypocritical? To choose love when you don't feel love. How many times have you heard people say, that is hypocrisy? I don't, I don't love that person. And I'm supposed to act like I love that person? That's hypocrisy. And Paul says that is not hypocrisy. Because love is a choice. It's not a feeling. It is a choice. And he was saying when you choose to love, that is not hypocritical. Choosing against your feelings. That's heroic. That's what it means to be human. That's what it means to be adult and to be mature. Is to acknowledge your feelings and you can say, there's no love in me for that person, but God loves that person and God lives in me and God is love 
And God says, by faith, in response to a life yielded to me, choose to love that person. Maybe the feelings will come. Maybe they won't. That's God's business. My business, in response to yielding my life to Him, is to choose to love. Love without hypocrisy. And again, something only God can do. And I think about how I'm prone, you are. We catch ourselves in it, and it ought to make us sick. That we gravitate toward people often for what we get from them. They stroke us the right way. Or maybe they're well-known, and we kind of like being in the company of the well-known. Maybe they can give us stuff, and we like getting stuff. It's Christmas, after all. It's time to be good, nice, and not naughty. So you can be on the right list. Get more stuff. It is that, that is hypocritical love. To love somebody for what I can get, even if it's just kindness, respect, to be affirmed, to be accepted, that is hypocritical love. But to love when there is no prospect of getting anything in return, as God loves us, then that is a pure love. And I think that's why later on he's going to say, associate, be caught up with the lowly. Because there's nothing that they have to offer. Let love be without hypocrisy. Not for what they can give you. Not for what you can get out of it. And it is a choice. No selfish interest. And love, by definition, is selfless. No ulterior motive. And again, isn't this the miracle of redemption? Think about what he said back in Romans 3. None are righteous. None are seeking after the good. And for me to be selfless, it's the miracle of redemption. And there's no way again this can happen unless my life is yielded to him. Now, This is an interesting passage of Scripture because it is full of what we call in Greek grammar participles. Participles are not verbs. They modify verbs. They are linked to verbs. And so here the verb is, let love be without hypocrisy. And now the participles, abhor what is evil, are actually in that unhypocritical love, you will be abhorring what is evil. You will be clinging to to what is good. And I thought about that. First of all, the word abhor is a very strong word. It means to loathe, to hate, to separate yourself from it. That you even, it it, it would strike horror in you was one definition I came across. It is that kind of, I want nothing to do with this. And immediately we think, that's how we should react to evil in somebody else's life. And what we do is we cling to the good in us and we abhor the evil in others, don't we? And so we're so self-righteous and self-vindicating and justifying and all of it's because I'm clinging to the good in me. 
where I wonder if what Paul's saying is, abhor the evil in you. The evil of a hypocritical love that would not love selflessly when there is nothing to receive and nothing being given. We still love. When it seems that it's a one-way relationship, we love as God loved us. And we abhor the evil that says, give to me. My bank's empty. You've made more withdrawals and you've made deposits. I can't continue to love you. That is an evil. We should abhor it. To abhor evil is to acknowledge evil. Again, not very politically correct today. To call things evil. But there are many evil things. And we are to acknowledge it. That's the first part in abhorring it. There is an evil. There is an evil in me. Remember Paul said in Romans chapter 7, as a believer, there is evil present in me. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's evil in me. And I ought to hate it. Abhor it. I don't need to be pointing out the evil in other people's lives. The Holy Spirit is more than sufficient to do that. Isn't he? But if I will allow him to point it out in my life. And to regard it as he does. It's evil. And he abhors it. And to abhor it when he lets me see it in me. Not to, not to rationalize it, to make excuses for it, to say, you don't understand what happened to me as a child. It's evil. And God hates it. And He wants me to hate it. And when I should see it in the lives of others, there doesn't become a basis for having nothing to do with them, but a basis for praying. And recognizing that again, while I was God's enemy, He sought me. And initiated a relationship with me. Abhor what is evil. I don't, you know, again, this is the main thing here is about relationships. And it's about looking at myself and not just looking at others. It's the main context here because it's love. But obviously this would also pertain to the evil that we participate in. The evil that we listen for. The evil that we watch, that we read, abhor it. Abhor it. I, I don't watch movies that, um, that try to, I'm looking the word I'm looking for, just make it positive or make light of adultery. Adultery is evil. It is evil. And when I can just read the, you know, the little blurb, the promo on a movie, and, and it's making light of adultery, why do I want to watch that? I want nothing to do with it. And we've become, I know, very desensitized to what the Bible calls that ugly word, fornication. Premarital sex. And the Bible says, it's wrong. It's sin. It's evil. We act like it's just a rite of passage. 
It's not a rite of passage. It's ungodliness. And God hates it. He loathes it. And he would have his people hate what he hates. Abhor what he abhors. It's part of a life presented to Jesus. And we could go on. And again, it's not that I walk through life hating all of life. Because there's good in life. There is much good. But I don't put my head in the sand and refuse to call evil, evil. That in itself is an evil. Not calling evil what it is. Cling to what, a, what is good. And again, it's the participle relating to love, clinging to what is good. What is that good? Sometimes we go, I don't know if there's any good left. Sometimes it's just the memory of a good thing that we once remember about a person in relationship with them. We'll then cling to it. It may have been 20 years ago. Cling to it. But I think the, the good ultimately is the prospect of what God can do. Because God is good. And, and God is able to, in any person, bring about truly a redemptive, powerful work of grace. And I have to cling to what God is able to do. And not focus, when it comes to that relationship, not focusing on how I have been sinned against, but clinging to the good. The good. The word clinging here is the word that's used for glue. To submit yourself, to glue yourself to the other person where it can't be undone. It's the same kind of idea that's used for the bond of marriage. That is to be permanent. Something that that would bring ruin to separate. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Speaks of heart commitment to be in bonds with, to be dedicated to, consecrated, loyal, faithful, giving time and energy and self. All of it in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And again, love does this. Love prefers others. Love doesn't just seek its own. It will listen and not just have to hear itself speak, but listen to the other person. It will give respect. It will hear people out. It will treat people with respect and dignity and honor. Sometimes this is just merely good manners and being polite. And I just go again. Yes, in a one-to-one relationship, this is principally what Paul's talking about. Give preference to one another in honor. Listen. Give respect. Be polite. Build up. Esteem highly. Be dignified in how you relate to other people. But again, for the Christian, we know this is not just limited to how I relate one-on-one with another Christian. It's how I relate to the world. Sitting in McDonald's the other day, having my iced tea and reading my Bible and doing some of the work I do when I go down to McDonald's, believe it or not. And, and, I, and I remember, and, I, and, I, and, those, and they just look at those, those women that are in there working, almost all women, and how I appreciate how hard they work to keep that place clean. But what always, I just never ceases to amaze me is how, how people can be such slobs. And why they have to work. I mean, that place gets mopped like every 30 minutes. And it has to be. 
Because almost every person that comes in leaves a mess behind. And I just go, it doesn't have to be that way. How many of these people claim to be Christians? I mean, I have a lot of people when I sit at McDonald's with my iced tea and my Bible that come up and talk to me because they see I have a Bible. And they want to talk about the Lord. It's been amazing. And I, and I, just, and I, just, and I wonder how many others who are not talking to me who claim the name of Christ and yet are totally inconsiderate of everybody around them. That is not giving preference in honor. So what? They're working for minimum wage, and it's their job to clean up after me. It's not my job to make a mess for them, but to treat them with honor, to give preference in honor. It's not insisting on my own preference, it's not a, it, but in it... It is not ignoring the preferences of others. It's being kind and considerate in all of life. Again, it's an outward orientation by the miracle of God's redemptive grace in us. That now I become aware that somebody comes up and says, Man, can you tone it down? I can't even hear myself think you're so loud on that cell phone. I'm sorry. You know, we don't have to be defensive. Because we know what it's like when people are like that. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I, I, you know, I, I just wasn't aware of it. Instead of being self-justifying, being kind, considerate, giving preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, which tells us that there is a place for working at relationships. Now again, I don't like this. So I, I, I so appreciate the relationships that don't need work. I was talking with a friend of mine. I've known him for 35 years. He's up in his hill doing an air conditioning job for us. And, and, he, and I, I saw him the other day for the first time in quite a while. And he says, it's just so good in the Christian life to be able just to pick up where you left off. Amen. Hallelujah. But the reality is, it's not always that way. And sometimes relationships have to be nurtured. And they have to be stayed with. And you've got to keep talking. You've got to keep seeing each other. And I know I'm a quiet person, and, I, and I've seen more often than I'd like to admit that people take the silence as being condemnation. And so I've got to make myself talk. You know, because, because people are going to think that by not talking, I'm being negative. I'm holding back the negative thoughts, you know, because every mom says, if you don't have anything good to say, then don't say anything. <laughs> right? And so everybody's thinking, well, Charlie's quiet because he didn't have anything good to say. So I got to talk. I got to nurture. I need to be not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Again, this is in the context of love, being devoted to one another in love. And that, and that we get just sometimes just tired and lackadaisical. And we start to get lazy. We lose the zeal in the relationship. Kind of, you know, the honeymoon's over. And he says, shouldn't be that way. And it's not that the romance is going to get greater and greater, but the love can get greater and greater. And it truly can. Young people can't understand this. You know, but I, Patsy and I have been married for 25 years now. And I can say with all my heart, I love her more today than I did when we got married 25 years ago. And it's different you know, it, it, it's, but it's, it's better and greater, I feel. <laughs> she does as well. 
I think. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. In our service to one another in love. As unto the Lord. Do all that you do as unto the Lord. And even in loving people who are ungrateful and give nothing in response. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Now I like that. Because that tells me I can't just be thinking about the present. And what's going on in this relationship. But again, a life yielded to Him is going to manifest itself in hope. Because I know that Jesus is not finished with me, and He's not finished with anybody else I know. And He is more than able to finish that work that He's begun. And He will. He absolutely will. So there is hope, man. And I I have to throw in the towel and say there's nothing I can do. But I still have hope. Because there's a God, and there's nothing He can't do. So there's always hope. Always hope. Not in ourselves, not in what we can do, but in the Lord. And we can rejoice in it. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. In the context, it's relationships with people that you love. Yes, there's tribulation in the world, tribulation that Christians suffer He spoke about that in Romans chapter 5. But here, this seems to be in relationships. There will be tribulation. I wonder why. Sinners sin. There are no two people on this earth where one of them is not a sinner. Sinners marry sinners. Sinners have little sinners. And sinners sin. Persevere in tribulation. Persevere in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Praying for one another. And again, this is a choice he's saying here. You choose to pray. You're not simply responding to the mood. Well, there's tribulation, now it's time to pray. But we're devoted to prayer. In the thick and the thin of it, in the good and the bad, we pray. Not by impulse only. But again, he's, he's bringing us to choice. Choose to pray and to be devoted in prayer. And here I want to quote something I came across that I found very powerful. Listen to this. Because the opposite of choosing, choosing to pray, choosing to give, Choosing to live a life yielded to God. Choosing by faith to, 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 to respond and to, and, and to relate to Him in each of these things that He's calling us to. The opposite of that is a life of impulse. Simply going by impulse and impression by emotion. Listen to what this author says. Impulse in anyone but a child is dangerous. It is a sign of something unstable and unreliable. Determination means to fix the form of our choice, and God demands that we use this power when we pray. The majority of us waste our time in mere impulses in prayer. There are many verses in God's book which refer to this power in the heart to choose voluntarily. Impulse is not choice. Impulse is very simply to instinct 
Impulse is very similar to instinct in an animal. It is the characteristic of immaturity and ought not to characterize men and women. In spiritual matters, take it as a safe guide never to be guided by impulse. Always take time to curb, to t- take time and curb your impulse. Bring it back and see what form of a choice based on that particular impulse would take. Impulse is the characteristic of children. Impulse is like instinct in an animal. God wants us to choose. A life yielded to Jesus will not result in greater impulsivity. It will result in greater choosing. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, that means the harnessing of impulse. We never get credit spiritually, and that relates this, he's been talking about prayer, now relating it to giving. We never get credit spiritually for impulsive giving. There is no virtue in it whatsoever. As a rule, that sort of giving is a relief to our feelings. It is not an indication of a generous character, but rather an indication of a lack of generosity. God never estimates what we give from impulse. We are given credit for what we determine in our hearts to give for the giving that is governed by a fixed determination. The Spirit of God revolutionizes our philanthropic instincts. Much of our philanthropy is simply the impulse to save ourselves an uncomfortable feeling. The Spirit of God alters all that. As saints, our attitude towards giving is that which we give for Jesus Christ's sake and for no other motive. God holds us responsible for the way we use this power of voluntary choice. Character is the whole trend of a man's life, not isolated acts here and there. Impulse. And God deals with us on the line of character building. No one has any right to yield himself to any impression or to any influence or impulse. Immediately you yield, you are susceptible to all kinds of supernatural powers and influences. There is only one being to whom you must yield, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But be sure, it is the Lord Jesus Christ to whom you yield. Insanity is a fact. Demon possession is a fact. And mediumship is a fact. So beware to whom you yield. When once a nature is laid hold of by the sovereign power of God and recognizes to whom he is yielding, then that nature is safeguarded forever. Beware of impressions and impulses unless they wed themselves to the standards given by Jesus Christ. That's good stuff. And again, it's like we've stopped thinking. We go totally by emotions, totally by impressions. And he says, you only have one person you can by right yield yourself to. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And every impression must be, be brought up against the, the safeguard and the standard of Jesus Christ and what he has said in his word. And if it doesn't fit with that, then you may be being, being impressed upon by an agent other than Jesus himself. And there I skip the section here where he talks about the medium. There is a, there, there's so much in Scripture talking about evil and rejecting evil. Uh, you know, all these programs that are on TV now about mediums and, and talking to ghosts and talking to spirits. The Scripture says it is an evil. But one thing that that very renunciation declares to us is that human beings have the capacity to be moved by something other than God. And so to simply take every impression and every impulse as being from God is the height of folly. 
A life yielded to Jesus will be a life that thinks and a life that chooses and not simply a life that is governed by every impulse that comes along. That every impression, every impulse is taken back to the Word of God and to the person of Jesus Christ. Is this true of what God has told us in His Word? And that's why He says, be devoted to one another in prayer. It's not just impulse. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Saints have needs. Now he isn't saying you can only give to saints, only give to Christians. Obviously he's not excluding giving beyond giving to Christians. But we have a special obligation to meet the needs of believers. What if those needs are, are, are there because of their own folly? He doesn't say just meet the needs that came because of they were making wise choices. Meet the needs of the saints. Maybe they shouldn't be in need. Meet the needs of the saints. What about their wants? The things that aren't really needs. Like having Christmas presents under the tree. It isn't a need. But we have a God who goes way beyond meeting our needs. Way beyond. He's simply good and gracious. And I believe that God, if, if, if my heart is moved to only meet real needs, then I'm being a lot more tight than God is. Because God is very generous and lavish. I remember we had, I don't even know who it is, so I can say, if they're still here in the church, I have no idea. I, don't, I really don't recall. It's part of getting older and getting stupider as you forget stuff. The deacons one time made the decision that some of the church's money would be well used to buy swimming lessons for a family in the church. And there was a little bit of reaction to that. Thankfully, just a little bit. And um, I reacted to the reaction. Because I thought, every one of those men has the Spirit of God. And we want them to prayerfully consider how God would have them to use the money that's been put at their disposal. And yes, it is not a need, but it's a good thing to do. What parent wouldn't want to have, be able to get swimming lessons for their kids? It's not a need, but it's a blessing. And it's a way to bless this family. It's not a problem. And so he's not saying meet only needs and meet only the needs of Christians. But the most minimal is that we need to be contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. I love you, but don't ever expect me to invite you into my home. Does that sound like love? Hospitable people are loving people. Again, if it's selfless love, it's love without hypocrisy, I'm not going to invite you in my home hoping you invite me in your home. That's hypocritical love. But if I love you, then I want you to be part of my life. And I want to be part of your life. Doesn't necessarily mean in the house, hospitality, but it just means you're embracing one another and wanting to include. There's a welcome sign on your life. And you're not keeping track of how much time you've spent and how much time you've had reciprocated. There's just a welcome sign. That is a life of hospitality. It's a manifestation, again, of a life yielded to Jesus. Because just as our God in heaven says, welcome. Any who wish can come unto me.
Come unto me. Welcome. And we can come freely, without hindrance, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So should the same be for us, toward one another. So a great little passage, very practical issues of what it looks like when a life is yielded to Jesus. And again, we can claim a life yielded, but if God is not doing these things in my life, if I am not choosing by faith these things, then it's an empty profession. Let me close this in prayer. Father, again, thank you for just keeping things simple.